0: Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Joining us today is Dr. Tom Mankin, the CEO of the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments, and the co-author of a new report, Implementing Deterrence by Detection, Innovative Capabilities, Processes, and Organizations for Situational Awareness in the Indo-Pacific Region. Uh, It is a fascinating uh, strategy that uh, Tom joined us last year for uh, when uh, the entire concept of deterrence by detection was rolled out. Uh, Joining Tom on this effort uh, were Dr. Travis Sharp and Chris Basler of CSBA, as well as U.S. Navy uh, Captain Brian Durkee, who is a Navy fellow at the think tank. Tom, thanks so very much for joining us. It's always a pleasure having you on.
1: Thank you, Vago. It's always always a pleasure to be with you. Uh,
0: thanks very much indeed. And before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. FinContieri Marinette Marine sponsors our naval coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. General Motors Defense sponsors our technology coverage. And l 3 Harris is our joint all-domain command and control uh, coverage sponsor. Um, Tom... Uh, you know, obviously a, a great strategy, right? That people are unlikely uh, to transgress, whether in the gray, air, gray zone or anywhere else, if they're being watched. And, and it, you know, right now, there are so many dark spots on the map across the Indo-Pacific, vast Indo-Pacific, that folks can get up to a lot of no good before we, we sort of figure out what it is uh, they're up to. Your first report sort of detailed the strategy, which you have been working on, uh, I know for a number of years, uh, and this is the sort of, okay, rubber meeting the road. How do we translate the strategy into uh, r- reality? First, remind our audience why this impor- uh, this uh, strategic approach is so important. And second, what are all the things we need to do to realize it? Because the more you think about it, the more you realize we've got a very long way to go to get to where we need to be.
1: Yeah, thank you, Vago. So, I think the, the idea behind deterrence by detection is just the, the basic notion that uh, that uh, police officers and 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 most parents that I know are are familiar with, which is that uh, uh, if you're watching, if you're if you're on the beat or watching what your kids are doing, uh, they're likely to be on their uh, on on their best behavior. It's it's when you're not watching that, uh, that bad things tend to happen, and those bad things could be anything from uh, you know illegal activity. Up to you know a, a land grab, uh, a uh, you know an attack on a on a on a neighbor, and the basic notion behind deterrence by detection is that the capability to have twenty four seven situational awareness, which soldiers, scholars, analysts have have long talked about, it really it really is a, a near term capability. And so deterrence by detection, the original report talked about the value of 24-7 situational awareness, and and in particular, uh, the the role of non-stealthy unmanned systems in generating 24-7 situational awareness, uh, which I have to say was maybe a little bit countercultural to some folks, uh, you know, with a a focus on, uh, you know, on stealthy platforms, but we actually think that there's a lot of value not only to see, but to be seen. Seeing, uh, so we made the case for that in the original in the original report. Uh, we've had a lot of uh, subsequent discussions, uh, both you know here in the United States and, and, and with allies in various various fora. And what we wanted to do with uh, this report is really take the conversation forward. So hence, we now have implementing deterrence by detection. So as you said. What are the types of capabilities uh, that you would need to actually make this uh, a real capability? So we've we've expanded our focus beyond uh, the air domain uh, to include space and 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 other other domains. We've focused on the critical enablers of twenty four seven situational awareness uh, to include edge processing, high bandwidth communications. Uh, uh, AI, and then we've also focused on the processes, uh, the processes needed to actually achieve that type of a capability. We've also done it in a in a coalition setting. Uh, that was right. that was the case in the first in the first report, uh, but clearly a front and center in uh, in this effort.
0: Uh, and um, I, I want to. machine learning is also right. I mean, uh, an important piece of that. Uh, even though uh, for for some people it's become a little cliche, right? You know, here's your AI, and we'll give you a sign of machine learning with that. Uh, but there you go. But in in terms of the specific things we need to do, right? I mean, this is a vast job. Some of it you can do from space, uh, but obviously timeliness is important. You guys had a rollout event uh, today, which I commend people uh, to watch. Chris Bros was part of that. Uh, as well, and it was you, Travis, uh, and and uh, and and Chris from your team. What are the specific things we need to do to build this? And in part because you're a CSBA, you guys actually tend to put price tags next to things. But what it is, you know, how much how much do you need to invest to actually get to ABC level of, of capability? What's the way that policy makers and technologists need to think about the problem and the challenge? And then, what is the budgetary obligation that's required for us and our allies to try to get us uh, to to that end state?
1: Yeah. So, first thing we need to do is get the maximum value out of the systems that we already have. So, and and that includes uh, non-stealthy UAS, right? Where for several years there's been a um, you know there's been a move to either stop production or retire these systems. Uh, these are systems we already have, and we should get the maximum uh, benefit from them. And um, in many cases, that involves equipping them with new uh, pods, new sensors, uh, new means of communication uh, to you know to allow us to get the maximum benefit from them. Um, incorporating greater AI into uh, into UAS operations so that you can. Um, have operators control, you know, multiple multiple aircraft, or one operator control multiple aircraft. A whole bunch of of, of common sense, uh, relatively inexpensive things that, that we can do to get the maximum value out of uh, previous investments that the taxpayers have made. Second is also, uh, you know, is to draft off of the a uh, number of commercial developments, whether it's uh, developments in commercial space. Uh, where you, know, you have whole constellations being lofted uh, with sensors in various networks, or ne- various uh, parts of the spectrum, um, both you know, uh, signals collection and, and imagery collection of various types, uh, bringing that in as well. Uh, and then it's the, it's the processes, right? It's, it's, it's not just the hardware, it's the processes. I had a conversation a, a couple of months ago with a, a very senior officer uh, on this general topic and you know i think he, he put his finger on it where he said look these the, these systems whether you're talking about the uas or the, the sensors that they carry or you know various you know various uh, capabilities because these capabilities are cheap it's the processes right. and the manpower that are expensive and to that i would add you know um inefficient uh, increasingly outdated you know we you you know yeah the the uh we're, we're applying you know i don't know maybe late uh, mid to late 20th century uh, right. processes to a 21st century problem
0: so uh, and to to build on that right um you know when when people watch you know movies whether they're marvel movies or anything else uh right it's it's seamless data flows the UAV data is fed to the uh, shooter uh, almost seamlessly, and I think the reality of our command and control networks is is anything. Uh, but I can't remember who, whether it was Travis, Chris, or the other, or or, or Chris Bros, who mentioned, you know, that Excel spreadsheets are critical. Everybody's got to punch things into the spreadsheet, and then the spreadsheet becomes the foundation for everything we do. Folks are on chat rooms. Uh, there are person to person contacts, right? I mean, so the, the date, none of this is moving the way that we need it. Uh, to and in, in part, then we have a volume problem where getting the right information to the right person at the right time becomes a problem uh, and and a, and a challenge before before the information is is overcome by events. You know what are what's the what are the revolutions the revolutions in thinking and processes and technology that have to happen that even remotely get us to where it is we need to 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 be from a connectivity standpoint. I mean from a ubiquitous 24-7, 365, right? I mean, you you guys are Mm -hmm. talking about a surveillance grid that extends from the Indian Ocean all the way up to the Northern Pacific, right? I mean, it it is a formidable network that needs to be established.
1: Yeah, and I think that the the primary barriers that we face are are not technological. Um, uh, They are much more about uh, organizations and processes. Um, You know, this is... you know, at the the heart of this is building, uh, knowledge, building understanding and getting that understanding from one place to another. Right. And, and so I think the, the real revolution that needs to occur, the real transformation that needs to occur is, is an organizational one and a a process one because the, the technology to, to do this, uh, you know, long, long predicted is now here and, uh, it's not, um, you know, it's not closely held uh, by a small part of the U.S. government. Frankly, you know, a lot of it's uh, uh, further developed in private industry than it is, you know, in in government. So, it's it's really about it's about that. It's about getting machines to do machine work and getting smart humans to do smart human work. And as you as you mentioned with your, uh, you know, your, your story and yeah, Travis's story about, you know, the use of uh, Excel spreadsheets, um, we're, we're, we're not doing that right now. Right. You know, we, we have humans, sentient human beings, uh, you know, doing uh, things that, that, you know, dumb machines could do. Not even, not even AI, <laughs> not, not even, not even sophisticated machines. Right. We, we, we have, we have uh, sentient human beings doing dumb machine work. So let's, let's get the, the smart people doing smart people work and the machines doing machine work. Uh,
0: to uh, to that end, um, I'm going to change my order of my questions a little bit because I think this is a c 2 specific question. Uh, our uh, audience knows that L3Harris is our sponsor and we're doing a series of monthly programs um, delving into joint all domain command and control uh, questions. And, and so there are a couple of discussions ongoing, right? I mean, each of the services have their own unique uh, needs, right? I mean, as as Chris Doherty of uh, CNAS pointed out, right? I mean, the Army has hundreds of thousands of radios that the Navy and the Air Force don't have hundreds of thousands of radios. Th- there are different constraints. You know, there's an Army squad. It's at the bottom of a ravine. Th- that is a communications dead spot, whereas it tends to be a little bit easier for the Air Force and the Navy to communicate, et, et cetera, right? I mean, each one has their own challenges and approaches. And yet there's increasingly, on the one hand, a recognition that this sort of ubiquitous connectivity is vital and important for the future of war fighting, right? Connecting the legacy to the future systems, among other things. On the other hand, there are also very smart people that you and I know who are saying, well, wait a minute, what's the problem we're trying to solve? Is connecting everything to everything else the problem we're trying to solve? From your standpoint, as somebody who looks at these things strategically, what's the problem we need solved? And then how do we proceed doing it? Because our approach right now is sort of like everything's got to connect to everything, otherwise we will not achieve the vision. And the question is, is that the right vision?
1: Yeah, no. That, look, that's that's an excellent point. Um, you know, could, connecting everything to everything is not an end, right? It's not. It's not a, or it shouldn't be an objective in and of itself. It should be a means to an end. <clears throat> and so, at least as far as deterrence by detection is, you know, is concerned. It is about you know, detecting nefarious activity uh, in a time frame that is actionable. And so, you know, what the types of activity that you're detecting, mm-hmm. where you're detecting it, you know, all will influence just how uh, well how how frequently you know you need to be monitoring a particular area. How frequently you need to be able to detect changes, and and what your timeline is for taking action. So I think I think to answer your question, you know, in the context of deterrence by detection, we could also talk about it in the in the context of war fighting. That's a much more fruitful way uh, of thinking about this. So in our in our earlier work, we actually did a, a, a fair amount of analysis where we uh, broke down. Okay, what you know what. What are the areas that we would want to truly monitor 24/7, or what are the <clears throat> types of activities that would truly require 24/7 monitoring, and what would uh, what are the types of areas, types of activities that would just require periodic monitoring or aperiodic, just you know, just depending on on the situation, and we use that you know we use that uh, analysis to to generate our uh, our original demand signal uh, for, you know, for, uh, UAS in support of deterrence by detection. And in the end, we found up that was actually, a, was a, a very, you know, there was a very reasonable, very affordable level of effort. So that's, so that's, you know, at least my thinking about how you'd go about this rather than just saying arbitrarily, you know, everything must connect everything. I mean, maybe, I mean, okay, but to do what, right. To do what?
0: And and you mentioned uh, affordability, right? I mean, you guys pride yourselves on being able to put numbers against things. What's the kind of investment required by the United States and its allies in order to be able to get at least a pass? Right. I mean, because there are various different ways of doing this and it's going to take time to do it. But from your standpoint, you know, what's what's the what's the number that if, if you were going to march into uh, Mike McCord's office and be like, Mike, have I got a deal for you? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we, we get, we get deterrent bang for, you know, a lot less money than the B61 program, for example, right? I mean, what's, what's the bigger than the bread
1: box number here? Look, I mean, it's, it really is decimal dust, uh, as far as the Pentagon is concerned, because, uh, in, you know, many cases, uh, the defense department has already procured the platforms, um, they, you know, they are procuring more platforms. Uh, you know, there's, there's the issue of sensor, sensors, uh, comms, but in terms of, you know, big, big ticket program, DOD terms, this really is a, you know, is a, is a very small, is a small uh, expenditure. And I think that's, you know, that, that may be part of the problem, quite frankly. Uh, you know, right. in, a, in a system that is uh, driven by big programs, uh, this doesn't rise to the, uh, you know, to the, um, to the level of a big program. Uh, and yet, again, you can look at what the, uh, say what the Air National Guard, for example, has done with their uh, Ghost Reaper uh, experimentation. Right. Um, that was a very small scale effort from a budgetary standpoint, but a very impressive effort in proving out Many of the capabilities that that we're talking about here, so it's not, um, you know, I, I, yeah, it's it's it, this. It's not a budgetary issue. It really isn't a budgetary issue.
0: It's it's a several hundred million or low billions investment that would reap you right. Not only you know, as as you were saying, it's not only a phase zero um, shaping tool, but it's also a full uh, conflict warfighting uh, network uh, tool as well, right? I mean, so you're building this in order to be able to do a variety of different things and be able to see uh, at-range persistence with layering that you just don't have today.
1: Yeah, and I think you're, you're um, and I would also say that, you know, uh, expenditures on hardware, if we do this right, <laughs> as we've been talking about throughout our, conversation if we do this right uh expenditures on hardware should be offset by savings on manpower right that's the that's the real expensive part of this anyway again if we get machines to do machine work and smart people to do smart people work um you you know my my guess is you're actually going to wind up saving money uh over over the long term but you're right you know uh these types of capabilities ai edge processing uh, high bandwidth uh, secure communications, these are the types of the capabilities that would be uh, important not only in competition in crisis but also in conflict. And so being able to build out these capabilities, uh, use them on a you know day- to-day basis, test them out, figure out what works, what doesn't work, improve upon it, uh, also you know would uh, would benefit. Uh, the Defense Department and the services, the joint force, when it comes to thinking about a, a conflict as well.
0: This neighborhood watch system that you guys are talking about, uh, uh, which I thought was a great analogy by Chris, is the sort of thing of sort of keep the lights on to keep the roaches from doing things, right? Or or at least keeping an eye on what's going on. You know, you use the parenting <laughs> analogy uh, yeah. and as well. But the trouble with China and Russia is they're increasingly making it clear that they don't care whether they're caught in the act, whether it's building, uh, converting uh, reefs uh, into islands or whether uh, they are intimidating anybody uh, or even uh, gray zone, right? They don't even hide the fact that they're doing gray zone, whether it's little green men or little blue men, right? I mean, ultimately, what happens if you actually are not deterring Right. I mean, how does that work? Because at some point you achieve a degree of shamelessness. And we could even say this in the US, you know, domestic political context that once shamelessness gets to an extreme point, you're undeterrable uh, at that point. Right. I mean, so how does this all work if you don't deter? Sure.
1: I think so. First off, I'll I'll just, uh, you know, I'll, I'll grant you the point. I'm not, I'm not sure that it's in fact true that uh whether it's the leadership in beijing or the leadership in moscow that they're completely um you know immune from uh you know from from outside pressures. but even if that's the case 24 7 situational awareness can can serve as the predicate for collective action should deterrence fail right so so uh, part of it is, you know, is is certainly aimed at the potential aggressor, but it's also part of it's also aimed at our allies and partners and their and their populations, right? So, if deterrence does fail, uh, the you know, the, the the concept of deterrence by detection should deliver you know, broadly shareable information that can be used as the, you know, as the predicate for collective action. Right, so I mean, the the uh, to take us back, you know, back in time, you know, the Soviets uh, in deploying intermediate range ballistic missiles to Cuba, you know, they they weren't counting on being <laughs> detected, right? They were they were counting on getting their deployment completed and then announcing it. Um, we were able to detect the deployment of the SS fours and SS fives, and you know. U two uh, um, uh, reconnaissance photos became a, a key part of our case before the United Nations, uh, bringing that you know bringing that to light. So even if deterrence fails, it's still I think uh, the twenty four seven situational awareness has an important role to play.
0: Um, and and uh, last question I have for you is sort of on allies and partners, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the, the Chinese model is. Uh, right? I mean, each one of the countries is sort of, we have to stand up to China, oh my God, we depend on them for trade, right? I mean, so you see this in Japan, you see this in Vietnam, you see these, you're you're seeing Australia being sort of an interesting case study, right? As uh, the Chinese beat the daylights out of them and and use them as kind of a global example of what happens. Uh, There was the recent Chinese tweet, you know, of a nuclear device, right? I mean, you Mm -hmm. know, Japan was the first one nuked and it can be the second one nuked too. Uh, Mm -hmm. Apparently they took that tweet uh, down at the end of the day. Uh, but I mean, it's it's clear that once you establish these sort of sensor grids, even if these countries are going to benefit from them, they're also going to kind of come under pressure and, and they may change their tune ultimately, right? I mean, so how do we need to work with allies and partners to do this when it's in their own advantage, even if they're going to get, let's be honest about it, targeted for,
1: for doing well, so? Well, look, there there are a whole number of reasons why a country in the Western Pacific would want to have situational awareness, twenty-four-seven situational awareness about uh, its sovereign territory and its environment, right? And those reasons range anywhere from uh, illegal fishing, piracy, uh, to um, you know, to uh, impingements on their sovereignty, to potential territorial threats, right? So, so I think from from a if I, if I you know, if I'm, a, a, I'll say, a, you know, a small, uh, unaligned country in the, in the Western Pacific, there's, there's a whole bunch of reasons why I would want to have better situational awareness about my neighborhood. And uh, right. only some of those have to do with, uh, with, with China. So I think that the case is a, is a pretty strong one. And in fact, you know, we, we see in some small cases, you know, already cooperation, again, whether it's to counter illicit fishing, uh piracy things like that um so you know, one way to think about this is uh is an extension of of those of those type of efforts because what we're talking about here is not a rival to our existing sensitive information sharing agreements with with close allies rather we're talking about something that that complements it uh with information that could be broadly shared really with a with a presumption of sharing and, uh, and spread widely. Uh,
0: I, should, I should also point out, right, that this network is as useful being used uh, against China. I should have also mentioned the Russians have become uh, extremely active in the Pacific in terms of their saber rattling, including exercises relatively recently off of Hawaii, uh, trying to flex uh, their position. You know, obviously the nation is a Pacific power, but then again, so is the United States, so is France. Uh, for example, uh, and obviously the United Kingdom and the Queen Elizabeth Battle Group will be uh, mm-hmm. in the neighborhood and, and London saying two more ships are going to be going uh, to, to the Pacific uh, on a permanent basis. Tom, thanks very much for joining us. It's always a pleasure having you on the program and, and look forward to having you back again soon for uh, more broader and thoughtful strategic uh, content. Thanks so much. Thanks, Vago. Always a pleasure.